I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 103. On the Pew Bible, that's page 502. On this past weekend, our senior hires had our annual fall retreat where we take a couple of days and uh, typically go over to Orlando for uh, a Friday through Sunday morning. And in our time together, we looked at a number of psalms and considered how the psalms guide us in our understanding of prayer. Most of the psalms, of course, are prayers that were initially written as prayers directed by the psalmist to the Lord, either to aid individuals in their prayer time with the Lord or to aid the people in their corporate worship as they gathered to pray to the Lord. And so we could say that the Psalms guide us, assisting us, helping us ourselves to grow as God's people in this important discipline of the Christian life. The Psalms by Calvin have been called an anatomy of the soul, that every human emotion that we might experience in this life is addressed in some way in the collection of Psalms in the Psalter. So whether we experience anxiety or fear or anger, or distrust, or confusion, or sorrow, or anything else. We know that God's Word, we know that the Psalms in particular, nourish our souls, speak great comfort to us, lay out before us such great hope, and even correct us where our our understanding might be false. And speaking of the Psalms, Tremper Longman says that the Psalms appeal to the whole person And they demand our total response. They inform our intellect. They arouse our emotions. They direct our wills. And they stimulate our imaginations. It's a quote that we considered over our weekend together. And as you can imagine, we got quite a bit of mileage out of that quote from Tremper Longman. As we think of the Psalms, they correct us where we might need correction. They help us grow in our understanding of the nature of God. And as the Psalms inform our intellect about who our God is, they also challenge us to take that knowledge of God, you see, and to work it out into our lives. We know that theology is important. We value it very highly in our church, and rightly so. But we also know as God's people that theology is never something that is to simply be a cognitive exercise that we are to always grow and challenge ourselves to how do we take such deep truths about the nature of God and work them out into our lives. Knowledge of God that is fleshed out, you see, in increased love, an increased love for our Savior, and an increased zeal as His called-out people for holy living. And as the Psalms arouse our emotions, they help us understand how we are to appropriately, reverently, process the emotions that we experience in this life in the presence of our great God. It's like we have this tendency in our lives, I think, to be very selective when it comes to the things that we choose to allow our minds to dwell upon. For example, sometimes it feels very good to be filled with self-pity, to assume that we are the poorest ones, to assume that the circumstances that we are going through in life are unique and no one knows what I'm going through that my circumstances are such that no one around me can identify with me. But the only way that I can stay there, the only way that I can stay in sort of that feeling of despondency and self-pity is if I put on blinders and isolate myself from the whole scope of Scripture and what the Word teaches me about God's nature. 
And I can only be filled with self-pity if I cut myself off from the local church, from the lives of others whose lives are filled with severe trials as well. And so the Psalms help me in this regard. They help me see that my perspective ought to be much broader than simply my own individual problems in life. They help me see that God is doing so much more than what I can perceive. That I can draw great comfort as I choose to take my emotions and make them subservient, submissive to the truth of God's Word. Taking my emotions and placing them underneath proper theological understanding. And so think of the Psalms as prayers. Prayers which keep us focused upon the truth of God's nature. And as we take those prayers and we make them our own prayers in our Christian life, we take the truths of God's Word that He has revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. We use those truths about His nature and we reflect them back to Him in our prayers to the Lord. And we are to take such truth about God's nature and as we pray them, working those things deeper into our hearts until there is lasting change. This is exactly what Psalm 1 is getting at, isn't it? When it tells us that we as God's people are to delight ourselves in the law of the Lord, to meditate upon it day and night, that as we work the truth of God's unchanging nature and His covenant faithfulness deep down into our hearts, we become like that tree which is planted by streams of water, whose roots go down deep, which never fail to bear fruit and to bear green leaves, regardless of the seasonal changes around us. And so while we could say that some of the Psalms speak very specifically to some of the struggles that we might experience in life, Psalm 73, for example, that we sang from earlier, um, is a great psalm to speak encouragement to our hearts when we are tempted to envy the lives of others around us, whose lives seem to be filled with so much ease and comfort while we go through struggles in the Christian life. Psalm 51, for example, when we perhaps struggle with understanding the true scope of the forgiveness that is ours through Christ Jesus, working out such assurance of our pardon. Other psalms that were more general in their application. Now, that's not to say that those psalms are vague, but rather that they are more general in the, in the sense that they address each one of us no matter where we are in life. Whether we're at a low point of our lives in which we're filled with confusion or discouragement, or even if we're just going through sort of the daily routine struggles of Christian living. And this, I think, is the beauty of Psalm 103. The psalm is probably among the most familiar of psalms to us. A psalm, no doubt, that we have read periodically over and again throughout our Christian life. We use verses 10 through 12 in our assurance of pardon very frequently on Sunday morning, just as we did this morning. And so we're at least familiar with that portion of the psalm. But it's a psalm that could really be addressed to any situation in life, because I think it's safe to say that we always need certain things in the Christian life. And one of the things that we always need to be taught, one of the things that we always need from Scripture is that we need reminding. We need reminding of who we are. We need reminding of who the Lord is. We need reminding of who we are in that covenant relationship with our God. In commenting on Isaiah chapter 6, but I think it's very applicable here as we think about this connection between the nature of the Lord and what our response ought to be because of His covenant faithfulness, 
R.C. Sproul says, people lack a proper sense of who they are until they behold the majesty of God. Isaiah, there in chapter 6, was devastated by a heightened awareness of who God is. Not only the contrast between God's holiness and our filthiness, but also of the contrast between God's knowledge and our ignorance. When Isaiah saw God on the throne, he became aware of how little he had understood of God's nature. There is nothing like seeing who God is to make men sensible of what they are. And that's really our desire as God's people every time that we gather in worship, isn't it? To see our God more clearly so that we would become more sensible in our understanding of ourselves. And so as we give our attention to Psalm 103 tonight, may we be amazed at our faithful covenant Lord. And as we grow even a bit in our understanding of His nature, may our response by His grace be one of increased humility and awe and reverence that He would make us His own. To delight ourselves in who God is makes us sensible of what we are. So let's read together beginning in verse 1. Psalm of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him." As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray again to the Lord. Our Father, we thank You for the deep, rich truth of Your Word that here in this one psalm we will never, uh, throughout our Christian life, exhaust the full depths of Your Word even here. We pray, O Lord, that You would enable us by the work of Your Spirit to give great attention to the truth of Your Word this evening. In the name of Christ and for His sake we pray. Amen. As we consider briefly this psalm together tonight, we'll break it up into three sections. In verses 1 through 5, in which the psalmist takes the truth of the gospel and seeks to work it out into his own life, we could say individually. 
And then verses 6 and following, in which the psalmist looks at the truth of the gospel as it is worked out in the context of the covenant community, in the lives of others. And then finally, in verses 20 through 22, the proper, we could say, the appropriate, really the only rational response to all of the truths of God's nature is one of praise and adoration before the greatness of who our Lord is. So first, let's consider those five verses of the psalm that we could categorize as kind of an internal meditation upon the glorious nature of God. The theme in this section is one of remembrance, the way that David puts it in verse 2, forget not all his benefits. Remembrance of who the Lord is and what he has done that results in a heart, in a soul that is filled with praise and adoration. I've been struck recently at how frequently throughout the pages of Scripture this theme of remembrance pops up over and again throughout redemptive history. That we see that one of the most widespread problems for God's people throughout Scripture is their failure to remember. We see it continually in the lives of the children of Israel, don't we? Even amongst that first generation of Israelites, when they were released from captivity in Egypt, they sat back and they watched the Lord pour out those plagues of judgment upon their and his enemies. They walked across the dry land as the sea was parted before them. They turned behind them and they saw the walls of the sea crash down upon that enemy army that was pursuing them. They walked throughout the wilderness with this miraculous provision of food each and every day, as the manna was provided for them. And yet it's simply not enough for them, is it? As soon as a trial comes into their lives, as soon as something comes that causes them to be challenged in their trust of the Lord, they immediately question His love. They doubt His power. They become suspicious of His leading. They grumble and they complain, is He even here? Does He care? Does He have a clue as to what He's doing? Failure, you see, to draw upon God's great acts of redemption. Failure to live as a redeemed people. Now, the struggle for them is not in the huge monumental events of redemptive history, just as the struggle for us is not that Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. The real struggle for them, you see, is in the mundane, daily moments of life. Yes, but there has been this mighty act of deliverance in which I am now free from slavery. But what about some variety in my diet? What about some water, Lord? Is that too much to ask? And how often we might say the same thing in our own life. Yes, I have redemption. Yes, I have forgiveness of sins. I know that I have eternal life that's awaiting me at the end of the age, but do I have to work with this annoying coworker over and again? He's just such a drain on my life. Why can't he just get fired? What about this teacher who has these unjust expectations in my life? Does he not know that I have six other classes? What about that relationship in which there's constant tension and conflict, in which it seems like every time I open my mouth, I'm involved in some sort of embroiled in some sort of argument again? Where are you, Lord? Are you involved? Do you even care? And it's for reasons like this that we experience every single day of our lives that this theme of biblical remembrance is so important for us. So we need to remember too, don't we? 
Well, why do we need to remember? Well, obviously, because we have a tendency to forget. We gather regularly to hear God's Word, truths about His nature, truths about our identity, that we are in union with Christ, and it's that union with Christ that shapes us. It's that engrafting as a community into Christ Himself that gives us our identity. And then we go to our jobs on Monday morning. We go to school. We run errands in the afternoon or on our lunch hour. And the world tells us lie after lie. Look for your identity here. Find your significance there. Put self at the center of all you do. You deserve it. You work hard. Do it. Whatever you want, you've earned it. It's all about living for the moment. It's all about gratifying that strongest desire that you have, whatever it might be. And we, when we gather here on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, we're told that we are fools for taking a few free hours out of our weekends to come here and to gather to just listen to someone talk at you, to tell you what you need to change in your life. We're told that that's the height of foolishness. And yet this is the thing that defines us. This is what really shapes us. This is our identity. And the reality is everything else that we hear out there Monday through Saturday, that's the lie. This is why we need remembering. This is why we must never forget who we are. Remember is, you see, to remember is to allow such truths about God's nature to grip our hearts To remember is to allow the truth of God's Word to control us, not the lies that we hear in the world around us. And so we need to remember because we tend to forget. We need to remember because every voice around us is telling us something different, feeding us those lies. Well, where do we need to remember? The way that David puts it in verse 1 is that it is in my soul... It is all that is within me that needs to dwell and meditate upon the greatness of God. It's that causal core of the self. It's that thing that drives me. It's the thing that moves me. It's the thing that motivates me. It's deep, deep within that I need to grasp the truths about the Lord and give my praise to Him within. Now, when you go through periods of your life in which you experience anxiety, perhaps, or worry, or fear... Perhaps you find yourself saying, I know that God is in control, I know that that's true, and yet I just can't help these feelings of discouragement and worry. And so here's where the truth of Scripture must permeate into that deep, deep recesses of the human heart. Because if it's true that those emotions need to be brought into submission to the truth of God's Word, then what the psalmist is advocating is taking the truth of God's nature You see, working it deep within, into the core of the self, so that instead of having that confession, I believe the Lord is in control, not equate with how I'm really experiencing life internally, what he's advocating, of course, is a consistency of character between the inner and the outer self, that that which I profess becomes that which I also believe, that that which I believe also becomes that which I live out volitionally in my will and in my emotions, that the whole self, you see, is brought into submission to the truth of God's nature. And so I don't just say that I believe in the Lord's goodness, but that becomes reflected in my disposition, in my relationships, in my circumstances, in every facet of my life. 
And so that's where this remembering needs to start. Deep within our hearts, for the heart is the wellspring of life. And what is it that we need to remember? What sorts of things does David tell us here in this psalm that we must never forget? Well, in verse 2, he says, all of his benefits. And then David goes on to dwell upon a few of those benefits. Forgiveness, healing, and redemption. That all of our sins, past, present, and future, are removed. That the defilement of our sin that results in this diseased condition is taken away. That life is restored as we are brought out of condemnation in which we were in that pit of God's judgment justly deserving His wrath and displeasure, we were brought out of that hopelessness. And not only are those things taken from us, that sin, defilement, disease, and condemnation, but in the place of those things that are taken from us, notice that we are crowned with love and mercy and goodness and renewal. The way that our shorter catechism speaks about it when it speaks of the benefits that are ours because of the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. It says that the benefits are justification, adoption, and sanctification. That, they, that our benefits are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. These are the benefits that are ours as a result of that effectual calling. And you know what the psalmist is talking about here in verses 3 through 5? He's talking about justification, isn't he? He's talking about being made right with God and being pardoned of all of my sin as it is all taken from me by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in place of that condemnation, I receive the righteousness of Christ that is made my own through faith alone. What the psalmist is talking about is double imputation that all of my rebellion is taken and placed upon Christ as He hung upon the cross and bore the wrath of God that I deserve, and that all of my sin is removed as far as the east is from the west, and that all of His righteous crown of obedience and splendor is now covering me, giving me great assurance. This is what we must never forget. You see, it is the gospel that David is talking about. It is the gospel that we must never forget. I think it's helpful for us at this point to remember where David is in redemptive history. You see, if David can draw such great comfort from that which he only saw in part, how much more should we draw comfort with the greater eyes of clarity that we now have, knowing what God has accomplished through the person and work of our Savior? Spurgeon put it like this, He said, thus is the endless chain of grace complete. Sin is forgiven, its power subdued, and its penalty averted. Then we are honored, supplied, and our very nature renovated till we are as newborn children in the household of God. All of those those things that resulted in our condemnation are removed, and in their place is that crown of righteousness. And it's this great inner renewal that he speaks of in verse 5. It's sort of this youthful vigor that results when our souls begin to understand the full extent and full scope of justification. Now, this is not some sort of health and wealth gospel that David is advocating here. 
that if you just believe enough that you will have physical rejuvenation and run around like an eagle with sprouting new wings, you know as you age that your body begins to be filled with more and more aches and pains and you wonder when verse 5 is going to be fulfilled. I don't feel as though I have the strength of an eagle. But you see, when we understand that that weight of sin and guilt has been removed from us, we become like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. You remember when all of that burden was taken from him and he was freed from guilt. He still had that earthly life to go, but there was such great delight that condemnation and wrath has been removed. And it's that peace of conscience, you see, that brings about that renewed inner strength. I was talking to our, our brother Michael Aiken on Friday evening, um, asking how his wife Jan was doing after surgery. And as he was asking me for various things to pray for him about, he said, pray that in the midst of this trial, that our response would be glorifying to the Lord, that we would seek to give honor to him in our disposition and the way in which we respond to such hardship and trial that we endure. That's our greatest longing and our greatest hope. And that's a picture of what David's talking about here, isn't it? Being renewed in that inner self, even though the outer self might be wasting away. Now from there, the psalmist sort of broadens his scope after verse 5, looking at the greatness of the Lord in covenant community in verses 6 through 19. As we look at the way that he deals with his covenant people, it's this very fatherly and this very intimate care that characterizes his dealings with us. In verse 6, we see that it's his fatherly care that works justice for those who have been oppressed. We heard just from this morning in our sermon from Matthew chapter 13 about the reality of hardship and trial and persecution that we might experience as God's people. There can be that temptation to want there to be vengeance immediately upon those who speak harsh words to us and harsh words about our Savior. As we read here, we can trust in our Heavenly Father that He will bring about great vindication on that day of judgment when our Savior returns. And so Romans 12, 19 is very applicable. Do not take revenge, for vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And so we are to trust in His fatherly goodness, to know that that day of vindication for His people is coming, and that it will come ultimately to bring glory to His name. And then we see in verses 8 through 10 that it's God's fatherly love and mercy that brings about discipline in our lives. You see, to simply ignore our sin and to ignore our rebellion in the lives of His children would not at all be a loving thing. And so when those patterns of lying or deception, anger or discontent or envy or more, when those things become patterns in our lives, our Father comes and exposes those things graciously to us. He's not indifferent to our sins, but He uses the truth of His Word through preaching and through our own reading Through prayer, He uses our fellowship with one another as others speak truth into our lives to expose our hearts to us. It's this fatherly discipline that comes. And that discipline is not always a pleasant thing. We read in Hebrews chapter 12 that He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness 
to those who have been trained by it. It's not a pleasant thing for our sin to be exposed, for all of that ugliness within to be made evident to others. And yet that's a reminder of God's love and goodness to us. And again, it's the assurance of love and forgiveness spoken of in verses 10 through 12 that leads to such trust on our part. For if our sin truly is removed as far as the east is from the west, if the love of our Father is so great, as high as the heavens are above, then certainly we can trust Him in the midst of trials, in the midst of chastening. All of these things are reflective of fatherly compassion, as he says in verse 13, as that father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. And it's really this central focus of this section of this fatherly covenantal love that brings us such great comfort. Now, the reason that the psalmist dwells upon these things is so that we as his people would be comforted. Justice, mercy, grace, discipline, forgiveness, love, compassion. These are all things that are manifestations of his fatherly care for his people. It's a good thing for us to dwell upon those attributes of our Lord. We can read of the amazing depth of God's love for us in Isaiah chapter 49 in verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And notice what the Lord says here about his immovable love for his people. You could hardly imagine a mother failing to have compassion on her children. How ludicrous for a mother who is nursing her infant to forget about him. And yet, even if such a thing were to happen, the Lord says, I will never forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And of course, we have the literal fulfillment of those words that Isaiah speaks as our risen Savior continues to bear those marks of His love upon His hands. Such great love displayed for us, His people, throughout eternity. That one day, when we behold our Savior face to face, and we see His nail-scarred hands, that appropriate shame and sorrow that we have ever doubted His love for us, So as we meditate upon such great fatherly love, such gracious love towards people who are so undeserving, such infinite love that led to the incarnation and the death of our Savior, we will never truly be enabled to get our hearts and minds around the depth, the height, the length, the width of God's love for us. And if this is true, you see, don't you see how eminently practical this is? When the world speaks all of these lies to you, your Father in heaven comes to you and speaks truth and acts upon that love. When you endure trials of various kinds in this life, our Savior still bears the scars of love upon His hands. Reason together within your heart and within your mind from the greater to the lesser that He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And why would he love us with such an undying love? Well, the way that David puts it here, for he remembers that you are dust. He loves us because we are dust. 
He doesn't love us, you see, because we fear Him. He doesn't love us because we are righteous. In fact, we are fallen. We are flawed. We are sinful. We are dust. Turn just in closing to Deuteronomy chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 6, we read these words. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. And so why does He love His covenant people? He loves us because He loves us. He loves us because we are dust. Such great fatherly love gives us assurance and gives us great security. It's a love that's undying. It's a love that's infinite. It's a love that's eternal. A love that is unchangeable. And so even though we are dust, even though, as the psalmist says in 103, our days are like grass, we are like that flower of the field that springs up for a moment, but when the scorching heat comes, its place remembers it no more that one day we will all pass away, that in generations from now no one will remember anything about you, but we have everlasting and eternal value because of our union with our Savior and because of the everlasting love of our God. And so how could, you see, our response be anything other than what the psalmist says in verses 20 through 22? He is the only one worthy of our adoration. And that psalmist at the end of the psalm has, we could say, this eschatological view in mind as he looks ahead and longs for the day when all of the created order will give its praise and adoration to the Lord, when every knee will bow before him in humble submission and in adoration. May our lives as his called out people more and more be filled with such a posture of praise. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the depth of your love, a love which we will never be able to fathom, for it is infinite and we are finite. It is eternal and we are are, are so limited. We are flawed and we are sinful, and yet you love us because you love us. What great assurance, what great hope is ours through our Lord and Savior, in whose name we praise and in whose name we adore. Amen.